Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talita kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This passage today deals with two categories of people who were more than just an imposition in the world in which Jesus was ministering. They were completely, oftentimes, unwanted. And in the Old Covenant, there's an impression left that our God is an extremely exclusive God. That our God only wants to work with certain kinds of people. That's the impression the Jewish folks got from the Law of Sinai. Now, of course, God wasn't here explaining every nuance of what he meant by what he said. All they had was the law. But by the law, certain people were in and certain people were out. And the law had very clear demarcations onto the kind of people you should spend time with and the kind of people you shouldn't spend time with. The kind of people you should minister to and the kind of people you shouldn't <coughs> minister to. But it's not clear, really, what God's true heart is until Jesus comes. Because until God takes on human flesh and can live and walk among us, until he can live the law, we can't really experience the truth of the law. Because the law is just words. What do they mean? What do they imply? What's God's intentions? The Jewish people could only guess at those things. They knew what they were supposed to do, but why were they supposed to do it? This is a matter of debate to this day. But Jesus, at least for those of us who have accepted him as the Son of God, as God in the flesh, we realize that he reveals the spirit of the law. God's heart behind the law. And so this is a passage that begins to expose God's thoughts 
about people that society and even the law deemed as unclean. And there are three critical themes of Jesus' ministry and the very nature of God that are revealed in this passage. And they're related. They build on each other. In fact, the last of the three points I'm going to make today is going to kind of bring the other two together. But they're also distinct. And the first is this. The costliness of love. For those who have done some research into the lives of women in the ancient world, you maybe this will be familiar. And it's an article called Ancient Roman Women, A Look at Their Lives. And the author is a woman named Moya K. Mason. And she relies heavily on a book that you can buy. It's Joanne Shelton is the author, and the book is As the Romans Did. And in Rome, one of the ways that children were aborted is through what's called exposure. So if for some reason when a child was born, the parent didn't much like what it saw, the child was then put outside and left to die either by starvation, by wild animals, by whatever else. It was called exposure. You're going to hear that in this uh, excerpt. I'm going to read from this article. So at least you know what we're talking about. This is a snapshot of the lives of women in the Roman Empire of Jesus' day. Women did not have a choice between having children or not. They also could not overrule a husband if he chose to expose a newborn. Many female infants were exposed by their families because they could not carry on the family name. And they also required a dowry at the time of their marriage. Eva Cantarella in Pandora's Daughters states, The earliest power that the father could exercise over Aphilius Familius, over his nuclear family, was that of exposure. At birth, in a highly symbolic rite, newborns, male and female, were deposited at the feet of their father. He, without explanation or justification, either recognized the child as his by picking it up or withheld his recognition by leaving it where it was. The recognized child became a member of the familia. The unrecognized child was abandoned to the river or left to die by starvation. Most of the exposed were girls, but some were sickly or weak-looking males. On one of the papyri, a letter left, this is an ancient manuscript that we found, a letter left from a husband to a wife instructs her to let the infant live if it's a boy, but if it's a girl, expose it. It was as simple as that. This practice of exposure greatly reduced the female population, as did the neglect of girls. Augustus was so concerned, he's a Roman emperor, with the decline in Roman population, particularly in the aristocracy, that he passed both the Julian laws in 18 BC and the Papaya Papian laws in 9 AD. These laws placed penalties on celibacy and not marrying, and rewarded marriage and having children. Neither set of laws really helped to greatly increase the population of Rome. Two details, maybe three, that are important in the way Mark describes the coming of Jairus. First, he names him and calls him a leader of the synagogue, which puts him into that aristocratic category in the way this is being described. And it was the aristocrats that had this biggest problem. Secondly, he's coming on behalf of a daughter. And third, she's 12 years old, which means she's becoming a woman and likely about to be married out of the family and he would never see her again. And yet this ruler comes to Jesus on his knees, before a man who we've just found out a couple chapters before, the rulers among the Jewish people want to kill. And so Jairus puts himself at risk, maybe his own reputation at risk, maybe in the end his own life at risk by submitting himself to someone that the Pharisees and teachers of the law wanted to kill. And he begs him for the life of a person that in the ancient world had very little value, his daughter. 
Now, Jewish people were not inclined to expose their children the way Romans typically did. That's not one of the Jewish things to do. But they did treat their daughters in some disrespectful ways. So what is happening in this story? Jesus is God in the flesh. And so however Jesus is going to respond to this situation is going to show us how God would respond to this situation. At least that's the way Mark is presenting it. So what is God going to do? Jesus honors this father who comes on behalf of his daughter. There's a costliness to love that Jesus values. No matter the value this girl had in her society, Jesus doesn't seem to treat her any different than anybody else who came to him for healing. That might not stand out to us, but for Mark's audience, it would have stood out big time. The second point I want to make today is the clemency Jesus shows to the desperate. Clemency for the desperate. This woman who has this hemorrhage, she most likely had a uterine hemorrhage, which means she was bleeding constantly. And we're told that she bled for 12 years, and that's... Interesting that she was bleeding for as long as this young girl, Jesus heals, was alive. But for 12 years, and what Mark says is that she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. And I'm going to get to that. But we first have to go to the law of Moses. This woman who has this kind of a disorder in the law of Moses would have been perpetually unclean. She would have been perpetually banned from the tabernacle temple. She wouldn't have been able to make sacrifices. Anything she sat on would have been considered unclean. Anything she touched would have been unclean. Any person she touched would have become instantly unclean, according to Leviticus chapter 15. And that person would have had to wash their clothes and bathe themselves and would have been unclean until evening, unable to do anything in God's presence. This is a serious thing for her, and she's been dealing with this for 12 years. And Mark's description that she suffered under the care of many doctors is an understatement, likely. And I'm going to read a quotation uh, from a book by Sharon Dowd called Reading Mark. And this is what she has found in her research. Indeed, when one reads the descriptions of treatments for uterine hemorrhage that were practiced in Mediterranean antiquity, it's easy to see why the author of Mark would characterize the woman as having suffered much under many physicians and as having become worse rather than better as a result. The second century CE physician Serranus describes treatments developed by his predecessors of the previous two centuries and expresses himself a preference for relatively drastic vaginal suppositories. For instance, oak gall, pulverized frankincense, calcites in equal parts, together with sweet wine or ashes of a sea sponge soaked in raw pitch and then put inside. That's his preference. He also recognizes that sometimes they use bloodletting to heal women from this, but he recommends not doing that because they die very quickly. This woman bears all kinds of scars, and she comes to Jesus out of desperation, and she knows that she can't touch him. She knows that. She knows that she would make him unclean. And so she reasons in her mind, in her desperation, that if I could just get through the crowd and just touch the hem of his garment, I might be healed, and then I can sneak away. And no one will know I did it. And she does that. And she touches the hem of his garment, and she is healed. And then, wonder of wonders, Jesus knows something happened. And he stops the whole parade 
And he asks his disciples, who touched me? And of course, he's pushing through a crowd of people. Everybody. The answer to that, Jesus, is everybody's touching you. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Somebody touched me. Now, the law of Moses kind of sets us up for what we might expect God to do when this happens. Because this woman has, by touching him, made Jesus ceremonially unclean. So what is Jesus going to do when he says, all right, wait a second, you touched me, now tell me the story. Now, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, verses 30 to 31, we have a good encapsulation of the way Jewish folks thought about the desperate. We find these words. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he's starving. Yet if he's caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it costs him all the wealth of his house. So is Jesus going to punish her? She's violated the law. But when Jesus realized what had happened, and he stopped the whole train, and he pointed her out, and she in fear comes to him, because she knows what she did, He praises her. He doesn't condemn her. And he doesn't even take all the credit for the healing himself. He says, your faith, your faith has healed you. He makes her partially responsible for her healing. He shares even that glory in front of everybody. Jesus shows mercy to the desperate. The law of Moses understood being desperate. But there was no mercy. But Jesus, as God in the flesh, shows mercy to the desperate. And all of these trains, the costliness of Jairus' love for his daughter, the clemency that Jesus shows to this desperate woman, come together in this final point, the consecration of Jesus. When Jesus restores a person, what happens? When Jesus restores a person, he restores not only their lives, but their personhood and their dignity. Do you notice that? This woman who has violated Jesus in the worst of ways, according to the law of Moses, is exposed, tells him the truth, and he says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Sin has a way of dehumanizing us, and the suffering that we endure because of the sin in the world dehumanizes us. Here, Jesus credits the woman with faith, and he pronounces a blessing on her for full and complete healing. Jesus has restored her not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually, and even communally in the eyes of her neighbors. The commentator Ben Witherington has written this in his commentary on Mark. Notice that Jesus not only explains to the woman what has transpired and why, but suggests that God's peace or wholeness now rests upon her, and so she can be reintegrated into society. That last phrase, be healed of your disease, may suggest that Jesus understood that there was more to healing than just the restoration of her body. Many times a person who's become physically well still carries mental and emotional scars. Jesus is perhaps suggesting that she needs to know and accept that she is now whole again. What a blessing he gives her. And in response to a sin she committed against him, she touched him when she was unclean. And he responds with the greatest blessing a person could give another. That's the God we serve. And it's similar with the girl, this young girl, 
Now, Jesus leaves the crowd with the impression that she's only asleep. Now, that makes sense for Jesus because when you can raise the dead, everything's sleep, right? Death is a permanent state, and Jesus indicates that that's not. But the crowd would never have understood that. When he says she's just asleep, they might have thought coma, something like that. He leaves that impression, though, when he goes into the room that she's not dead, even though they think she is. And he also guards the miracle that's done to her. Did you catch that? Don't tell anybody what happened here. And then he insists that they feed her. This is the God that we serve. Apparently not more interested in his own glory than in the needs of the people he is healing. He seems to put them even above his own reputation. He doesn't care if the crowd thinks he's unclean because this woman touched him. He wants them to know she's healed and whole and she is clean. Jesus doesn't care if raising the dead would have improved his reputation in the community. He hides the fact. Can you imagine what this might have done to the life of this 12-year-old girl if everybody knew she was raised from the dead? You think that this would change her life just a bit? Jesus protects her from all of that by not telling anybody what he did for her. The costliness of love values equally, no matter how society labels a person. And that is the kind of love Jesus honors with Jairus. There's a clemency that God gives to the desperate, even the desperate who overstep their bounds and impose on him, in this case, sin against him in their desperation. There's a mercy that flows from Jesus, that if that's true of God, what a God we serve. And perhaps this story makes clearer than most others that Jesus' ministry was less about his own glory, less about healing physical ailments only, that Jesus' glory and majesty was more about restoring people than it was about getting glory for himself. Some have argued that these kinds of stories indicate that Jesus didn't see any distinctions, that pretty much what we're learning here is that unclean, clean, sinner, um, saint, whatever you are, doesn't matter. Jesus doesn't care. Some have argued that. I think that would be a misreading. Dowd comments about Legion. When he's ca- the demons, the legion of demons is cast out of him. She says these words, and I think it applies to these two women as well. For the mark in Jesus, there are limits to inclusiveness. That which destroys the self and makes community impossible is driven out and wholeness is restored. The good news for this tormented specimen of humanity is not that he's accepted just as he is, but that he is transformed into the person his creator intended for him to be, no longer distorted by powers that are alien to his created self. This is true of these two girls too. The heart of Jesus is not that he doesn't care whether we're sinners or saints, that he doesn't care whether we're clean or unclean. The point of Jesus is that his desire is no matter where people start, he wants to restore them. He wants to restore their humanity. He wants to restore their place in community. He wants to bring wholeness and healing. This is the God that we serve. And all four of these miracles in this section of Mark, from the storm to the demoniac to this woman with the hemorrhage to the raising of this 12-year-old girl, It's not the acceptance of Jesus of them that really stands out in the story. It's the restoration of Jesus and Jesus' capacity to make the clean, the unclean, clean. 
the possessed pure, the dead alive. This is the God we worship. A God who draws no distinctions as to who he will restore. A God that does not respond in vengeance or wrath when a person in desperation sins against him, but instead shows mercy. And a God who protects those who he heals so that what is results is best for them and not necessarily best for him. In the First Testament, we're told that God is a consuming fire. And as a consuming fire, anything that is flammable, combustible, burns up in God's presence. And that's principally the way the Old Testament understood sin. But when somehow the glory and holiness of God could be contained in human flesh in the person of Jesus, we finally get to see how God really feels about us when His holiness doesn't prevent Him from coming into the presence of people who are evil. And what does Jesus do? He spends all of his time with the wicked. Tax collectors, sinners, leprous folks, people who were crippled, withered hands, a woman here who has a bleeding disorder that according to Leviticus makes her perpetually unclean, a dead girl touching a dead body makes you unclean too. This is where Jesus hangs out. What does that tell us about God? What does that tell us about who we should be? as ambassadors of Jesus in the world. My hope is that you see that Jesus is a surprise in his culture. The way he cares, the way he heals, who he's willing to minister to is a surprise. All we can say is that we should go and do likewise, and it's easier to say than to do. But each of us know in that place in our lives, those individuals who are part of our lives, our penchant to gravitate towards somebody that we like more than another is demonic. It's demonic. That is the self turned in on itself. 